hope you have your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be in Psalm 95, Psalm 95. So usually if you take your Bible and just go down the middle of it, you'll end up in Psalm somewhere, probably pretty close to Psalm 95. So as we were singing the first song, I noticed a little frog in my throat, so I, hopefully I can make it. I have a mint, I have a lozenge in my mouth, so I hope that's not too distractive, but I think I'm going to need it. So uh, anyway, so we had this we had this question in Sunday school: What movie makes you cry or makes you cry? Mine was not even mentioned. I was maybe a little bit embarrassed uh, to mention it. There's a lot, probably a lot of them. As I get older and older, there's more and more movies that make me cry. But my choice would have been Casablanca, and I don't know how many have ever watched Casablanca. I knew that would be the case. If you have never seen Casablanca, even with all of the Avenger movies, all of this, it is still normally ranked within the top 10 movies. And I would say it's actually probably closer to being one of the top movies ever. So the reason it is so great, I think it's so great, is that during, uh, it takes place during World War II, which we have said is the greatest generation. And there were tremendous sacrifices made during that period of time. Now, this was not a true story. This is a fictitious story. But I think it probably exemplifies a lot of stories that happened during that time. And it, a little bit reminds us of Psalm 95 in the fact that Psalm 95 starts out so jubilant, so joyous. And then these last two or three verses, it's almost like a big letdown. And Casablanca is kind of like that. It's a love story. It's actually about three people, a man and his wife, whom they think the man passes away and is killed in the war. And so she goes on and has a relationship with Humphrey Bogard, and uh, they fall in love. And then they are separated, but then they come together and they meet again, and lo and behold, the husband is still alive. And so this presents a dilemma, and ultimately you think everything's going to work out for the good of Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. They're going to get to be together. That's what everyone's kind of hoping, because they were so much in love in Paris. And so you think that everything's going to turn out just right, but Rick, the guy whom uh, plays a part of Humphrey Bogart, he makes a decision. He knows that Ingrid Bergman's husband will not go on and continue and be able to do the work in the war that he's been doing without her at his side. And so she can't make the decision for herself. She says, Rick, which is Humphrey Bogart, you're going to have to make this decision for us. And she thinks, well, the decision is going to be us together. But he, sadly, he makes, a he makes a decision that she will go with Laszlo, the guy who can help end the war, and he will make that sacrifice. So watch Casablanca if you can. I mean, that's probably a terrible description of it. But watch it and cry. You will cry. <laughs> but it reminds us a little bit of Psalm 95. It has this jubilant, joyous, very upbeat beginning, but it kind of ends, it seems as though it ends on a downer, so to speak. And we'll find out, I think, that that's really not very true. 
it, all of it is very up joyous and, and, and upbeat. But really what we're talking about in this psalm is how should we worship God? How should we worship God? It, did you know that the Bible tells us at various times how we are to worship God? So the way that we have structured our services, I mean, it was structured pretty much like this before I ever came. You know, it's, it's not by mistake. It's intentional. It has certain elements of worship that we include in it, including singing, including, including the preaching of God's word, including prayer. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today in Psalm 95. So let's go ahead and stand uh, as we go ahead and read this scripture. Take my lozenge out. Notice, as I read this, notice the difference between verses 7 and 8 toward the end of the, of the psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For he is the Lord, is a great God, and a great king over all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry ground. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank so much for this words of scripture that we have today, and sometimes uh, this abrupt change can be perplexing to us, but we, we definitely want to know today how we should worship you. What does that look like? What should our attitude of our heart be? And ultimately, what does worship mean when I enter into the rest of the world? And so we pray that you would teach us here today how we are to worship you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. amen. And so you probably noticed that there's quite a bit of difference there starting with verse seven, where he says, today if you hear my voice, and then he starts talking about this situation that happens at Meribah and Massah. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but there's a few points that I want to make about what it means for us to worship God and what are the elements that we need to worship God the way he desires to be worshiped because that's why we're here today, right? We are here to worship God and to honor and to glorify him. And yes, do we get things out of a worship service? Obviously, yes, we get things out of a worship service. We should be encouraged by a worship service. We should be illuminated by the scripture that we read and talk about. So definitely look forward to coming to worship service and getting something out of it. But ultimately, the ultimate purpose is that we come today 
and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, place him back up, exalt him in the place where he should be in our lives, and then take that message out to the rest of the world. But I think it's pretty clear, we'll go down through this kind of almost verse by verse, we'll skip around just a little bit, but I'll try to enlighten you what verse we're talking about. But in these first few verses, it's all about us coming together for the worship of God, right? Do you see that? It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. This is not a singular person coming together, although you can worship God on your own and you should, right? We should all have our daily quiet times where we come together uh, with our Bible and with the, and with the Lord and, and worship him. But specifically, we are commanded to come together and to worship together, uh, not, as, not as people individually, but as an assembly of believers. And that's really what a church means, right? Did you know that the word church is merely the word for an assembly? It's an, uh, if, if you belong to the Lions Club, you know, and you had a meeting, you could rightfully say that is a church because it is an assembly. Now, we know it's not a church like we think of a church, but an assembly just basically means an assembly, and in our context, it's an assembly of believers. And so we are to gather together. That's why this time together, even though COVID is so prevalent, is important to me and should be important to all of us. We just cannot worship personally the way that we can corporately. It says that we come into his presence. There's a sense in which God is everywhere at all places in all times, right? It's called his omnipresence. He is everywhere at all times. But this speaks about coming into his presence. And I, I think that means that we are ready to enter into the presence of God we have made confession of our sins and we are ready to meet with God. We come into his presence and we do it corporately. Matthew 18, 20 says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And like, once again, I'll say it again, he's everywhere at once in all places all the time. But there's this sense that when we, as the church, we assemble together, he is there in a special way with us. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we're to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now this is a little bit like preaching to the choir because you guys are all here, right? You are all faithful at coming to this church, so I commend you for that. And there are others who genuinely have a good reason not to attend our churches because of COVID virus. But I would just look at the camera back there and hope they're watching the service and say to them that not being here today is no reason not to join us corporately by watching us on the video and participating however you can. I hope that everyone has a plan that it, if for some reason we cannot meet corporately together, that they have a way of maintaining contact with other Christians so that they can continue to be encouraged in the faith. It's important that we do that. 
It's essential that we do that. And you might say, well, how do you know it's essential that we do that? I know it's essential because I didn't do it one time. One time in my life, it was true of me of what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 that we should pay more close attention to our faith that we might not drift away. That we might not drift away. And that's the way drifting away from a church happens, right? Or drifting away from the faith. And you might say, well, I thought you believe in eternal security. Well, I do. But those who drift away prove that they might really not be of the faith. And so how, you might say, well, how did you drift away? Well, it was a slow process. A drifting boat. That's what this is. It's a picture of a boat in a harbor that has no anchor and the winds come along and it moves it to and fro, and before you know it, it's out to sea where it's dangerous and there's no hope of recovery. And I very clearly remember this, and you know, I'm not proud of it. I don't share it because I'm proud of it, but I share it that it might help those who might be tempted to do the same thing, is that I had a very demanding job. Jake knows what, it like, what, what it's like. I worked for an oil field service company, on call 24 hours a day, mostly seven days a week, and so I was involved in the church in Mount Carmel. I was helping with the junior youth. Me and Darla were doing that. And uh, spent so much time at work. I mean, it, it was just a lot of time at work. It was difficult for me to make church on Sunday morning sometimes. It was difficult for me to make Wednesday evenings. And so I just didn't come one time, you know. I, say the meeting was at 7 o'clock and I didn't get finished till 7.15. I thought, well, I just it's too late to go. I just won't go. And it just becomes more regular, right? You miss another time. And it's, it hurts a little bit less to miss the next time. And then before you know it, you know, I'm missing Sunday morning church. And before you know it, I'm telling Darla, I just don't want to go. And then I'm telling her, I'm not going to go. And that's what it is to drift away. Very rarely does someone make a decision who's walking with God, I'm just going to reject this and walk away. It's a, it's a drifting away. It's a way that Satan used to get us away from the church and fellowship, get us out on our own like that, like that lost sheep and so that he can destroy that person. Now, I do believe in eternal security, and I was saved, and it's evident because God brought me back, right? He brought me back. At some point in my life, he began to speak to me again. And he said, it's time for you to come back. And I did come back. But I want to I make sure that we know that church is important. It's essential that we remain engaged with other Christians and growing in the faith. So that's kind of the... A downer there, but look at the look at what else we're supposed to do in church as we come together. We are supposed to sing unto the Lord, and this is an enthusiastic singing. It's so enthusiastic that he report he he uh, repeats it and he he calls it a, a joyful noise. And so it's not even necessarily singing that's on key necessarily. It's not how good you sound. It's the enthusiasm that's in your heart that. He wants to see come out. 
It's even in some versions referred to as shouting. So this is not some quiet singing service. This is a loud, boisterous service. So often in our churches, we don't experience that though. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. I wrote down here why. One reason I think why. Uh, we're looking at ourselves too much instead of God. <laughs> we're thinking about people, what people might say about us. If we're too extreme, if we're too outlandish, we're really looking at ourselves rather than looking at God. The psalmist, when he's writing this, he's looking at God and how glorified and how glorious he is. That's where all of this noise comes from, where this singing with a full heart comes from. He's looking at God and we need to look at God as well. Our focus should not be on ourselves doing our worship service. It shouldn't be what we're going to get out of it, but it's what God is going to get out of it. Our focus needs to be on God. If it is, if we understand what God has done for us, the extent to which he has loved us, then our singing will be loud and joyous and boisterous. And it will be a place of joy, right? This should be a place of joy. Amen. And it is. It is a place of joy. We have a gift that we bring as well. As we come, we bring the gift of thanksgiving. Thankful for a God who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for us. And so this coming together is essential. That's the first part of worship. We must come together to worship God. But then we also, we must humble ourselves in order to worship God alone. You might say, well, who else might we worship? Ourselves. <laughs> ourselves. We can't worship God if we are worshiping ourselves. And you might say, well, how does a person worship themselves? When we, when we put our thoughts and ideas and plans before God, then we are essentially making ourselves God in God's place. And so we, we need to get off of that and get God back into the center of our life. When we come together, we don't just come to a place, we don't just come to a building, but we come to a person. We come to Jesus Christ, we need him. And so we humble ourselves, and we'll see that a little bit later in the scripture as well. And this becomes a time that personally, but also corporately, we come to declare our obedience or our worship to God. It says in the scripture, verse six, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our master. But what's so important about bowing down? Should we be bowing down? Yes. <laughs> we should be bowing down. We should be bowing down first in our heart, but it's not wrong to bow down on our knees as well. Bow, by bowing down, it shows an act of trust because we're making ourselves vulnerable. I heard this one time described that you would never bow down before an enemy who is out to kill you because you're, pl you're putting yourself in a place of vulnerability. But this is a good place when we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows that we are bowing down to him, we are surrendering to him, and it's an act of trust in him that he is going to take care of us. 
And then it goes on, it says that we are to kneel before your maker. Kneeling is an act of reverence and an act of respect to someone who has created us. We've been created by God. Jesus was instrumental in that creation as well. He is our maker, and it is not wrong to kneel before him. It is proper for us to kneel. Why don't we kneel? Huh? What would they say? Pride, right? Sometimes reading the scripture can be hard on your heart, right? It points truth. It's like that sword that gets deep and reveals the motives of our heart. Many times we do not kneel because our knees won't let us. Sometimes that's true. We cannot kneel. But other times it's what will people think? Will they think I'm such a great sinner that I have to kneel? We should humble our, this is what I'm talking about, humble ourselves so that we kneel before our maker. We kneel before no one else, right? <laughs> Only him. So we humble ourselves in order to worship God. We, but we also, we acknowledge who God is as an act of worship. If you're filling out your outline, we acknowledge who God is as an act of worship. The psalmist says, the Lord is a great God. Can I get an amen? amen. He is a great God. And really, the Bible's kind of making a play on words here because in other places it says there is no other real gods. They're all gods that we create, right? We create money as a God in our life. In the old times, they created statues who became gods to them and they bowed down. There's no actual God, Baal, who actually exists. But we know what he's talking about here. He's saying, if there were any gods, if there's any gods you have made, the Lord is greater than all of them. He is king above all other gods. And so he is great, but he is also the creator and sustainer of all things. Look at verses four and five. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed it, the dry land. When we recognize that, it leads us to worship. Verse six, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Think about that. God is so great that he uses this symbolic language that describes the whole earth, the whole sea being in his hand. He made it. I don't know how big God is. <laughs> I guess there's no way of describing it other than to say he's infinite, right? He's infinite. He is not like some religion. Some people will try to get you to believe that God is part of this creation, or that the creation itself is God. That's called pantheism or new age movement. But God is bigger than even his creation. And we know that is vast. We know it goes on for billions of light years. He is greater and bigger than that. He made it, he created it, and he sustains it. People used to wonder, well, how do atoms even stay together? I don't know if you know it or not, but an atom's made up of 
what is it, positive uh, protons on the inside and negative electrons on the outside, but then there's also these neutral uh, elements in the, in the nucleus of the atom. And by all scientific reasoning, atoms should not be able to stay together. They should just fly apart. But we know what sustains the universe. Amen. Jesus himself sustains the universe. Look at Colossians, I believe it's chapter three. He not only created the universe, but he sustains it. In other words, he is worthy of our praise and worship. Amen? He is worthy of our praise and our worship. He created all things. He created us. He sustains all things with the word of his power. But there's more. <laughs> There's more than that. We go back up to chapter or verse number one. He is the rock of our salvation. Amen. He is the rock of our salvation. In other words, a rock is something that is steady. It's not going to give. It's like the parable of the storm and the one who built the house upon the rock and the one who built the house upon the sand. When the storms come, the house built upon the, stand, uh, the sand did not persevere, did not last, but the one who's built upon the rock did. And so he is our shepherd. It's spoken of in verse number seven. He's our shepherd who gives his life for us that we might have certain eternal life. That's why we have eternal security, not because I am so great at keeping God's word, but because Jesus has already kept God's word and our life when we believe in him is tied to him and forever joined to him. And so because he is a rock of salvation, I do not have to fear about losing my salvation. But did you know that there's another meaning of rock? <laughs> and we know that because of this story in these last three or four verses about Meribah, and Massah. So what's going on in this last one? This last section I've kind of entitled that we must obey with a joyful heart as an act of worship. We are not to harden our heart, we're to listen to his voice. That's what the last part of verse seven says. It says, today if you hear his voice, and you hopefully are hearing his voice even today as we are listening to this sermon together. Are you hearing his voice? Because he gives a warning. He says, heed this warning. Don't harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day of Massah in the wilderness. Well, what happened? Does anyone remember what happened there? <laughs> the Israelites were quarreling and grumbling, right? We pretty well know that. They had left the land of Egypt. They were on their way at the Exodus. They had crossed the Red Sea and now they had come to a place where there was no water and they had no water and they're grumbling and they're testing Moses and they're saying, we would just as soon go back to Egypt. And so this is all a picture of our relationship with Christ, right? We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, verses one through four. Let me read this to you real quick. You don't have to turn there, but listen intently to this. It says, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
as speaking of the parting of the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same food, they all ate the manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So you might say, well, how does that apply? Well, in this situation, the people of Israel and Moses were at this place, which is called Meribah, which means quarreling. And they were also at Massah, which was the same place, which means testing. And they were testing the Lord and they were testing Moses, saying, we have no water. We would just as soon go back to Egypt. Now, going back to Egypt, to them, meant going back to their ways of comfort, right? Even though they were slaves, they were going back to a place where at least they had food and water and they were being provided for. In our time, going back to Egypt would be the same as going back to the world, right? We have left the world to follow Christ. It means I would want to go back to the ways of the world and go back into sin, basically. The Israelites, they did not believe God about the promised land and they did not enter into his rest. Remember when they sent out the spies and they came back with the report and the people of Israel said, we can't go in there. And God said, don't worry, I'll be with you. And they said, we can't go in there. And so that generation wandered for 40 years until all of that generation had died off and none of them entered into the promised land. They did not enter into his rest, in other words. And so how does this all come down to worship? We've been talking about worship. The Psalm has been about worship the whole time. How does this apply to worship? And here's what it is. We must obey with a joyful heart as an act of worship. Worship cannot just be done here in this building, right? <laughs> you know, we must take what we learn here and take it out to the rest of the world. And that, I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you can do all of these things we've just talked about. You can sing, you can shout, you can pray, you can read God's word. You can all do that and it's all just head knowledge and it doesn't mean a thing unless you go out into the world and be obedient. And that's what he's telling the people of Israel here. He says, don't be like these people who harden their hearts. Don't, if you're listening to my voice, don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts, but let your heart be soft that you might be obedient to me. You know, it's easy during the time of COVID, I, I think about our hearts a lot. And I think about how re people respond to different difficulties. And, uh, you know, uh, Danny was right when he was talking about Sunday school, when you become a Christian, you said a lot of things that were right, but one thing that stood out to me is, one thing that stood out to me is that you said when you become a Christian, life doesn't just automatically become easy. You know, we still have struggles that we go through, sometimes more significant struggles than we would have if we hadn't accepted Christ. Remember the verse, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
So I think, I think this section of scripture is very important for us today because it says today if you hear his voice about how to worship, don't harden your hearts when difficult times come, right? We have a choice to make when difficult times come. We can harden our heart and go away from God. That's kind of what I did. When things got tough, when I got busy, when I had a lot of work, I let those things get in my way and I took the path that I shouldn't away from God. But there's a choice we can make and realize that God has given us these things, these difficult times in our life for a purpose and that's to conform us to the image of Christ. And if we understand that, and we understand that everything's going to work out for our good, then we can persevere in our faith and we will enter into the rest that he offers. I just love it when all these verses come together and they sound so much alike each other. But in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when things get difficult, choose Christ and choose his rest. You might say, well, what does it mean to have rest? What does it really mean to have rest? What it means is that Jesus has done all the work for us, hasn't he? He has paid the penalty for every sin that we would ever commit. We do not have to continually be working ourselves into God's favor. Our favor comes through Jesus Christ. When we believe and trust in him, then all the good works that he has done has been given to us. And so we rest in our faith, even though we work hard, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's an oxymoron in a way. It's, it's not a co contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It just means that we are so grateful in our life that he provided everything for us that we want to work for him. <laughs> we are grateful to him. And that means we want to do his will and be obedient to him. So we come together to worship. We humble ourselves in order to worship. We acknowledge who God is in order to worship. And we listen to his voice and we obey in order to worship. The word worship actually in the New Testament is from the same root word as to be obedient. That's what it means to worship, is to be obedient to God. Let's do our best as a church to help each other to be obedient to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for the blessings that we have through Christ. It's difficult for us to comprehend sometimes, but all of the laws of the Old Testament that we see outlined that no one could obey, Jesus obeyed. And not only to the letter of the law, but he did them with a proper heart and motive toward God. It's something that we cannot do, it seems like, for even a day. And yet Jesus lived this life his whole life. 
And he lived it for us. And he lived it in such a way that when he died and rose from the dead, he can make this offer to all people that anyone who places their faith and trust in Christ as having paid the penalty for their sin can have eternal life and be restored to a relationship with God. And we thank you for that. And we should sing really loud because of that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.